Assad needs to go. Assad. Assad must go. Player. Assad needs to go. Assad. Assad must go. Player. Assad needs to go. Assad. Assad must go. Player. Assad needs to go. Assad. 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 Assad must go. Dark secret place. This radioactivity is coming from Brian Suits on KFI. I would bomb the shit out of him. Dark Secret Place with Brian Suits on KFI. KFI AM 640, more stimulating tug. It is a dark secret place at our fresh new time, 8 p.m. Everybody, if uh, you have been setting your alarm for 10 p.m. and waking up uh, and, and turning us on, well, uh, you can you can move that two hours to the left. Yeah! So it is, uh, it is 8 p.m. for us. But wait, there's more. Uh, I know you're saying, well, sure, then at 10 p.m., you pick up your headphones and you go high-stepping uh, right on out that door and you go live your go-go exotic lifestyle. Uh, no, we are going to third hour. Dark Secret Place is now expanded by 50%. Yeah! That's what the math says. So there's now 150% of the Dark Secret Place. And uh, and that'll be, and by the way, as for, for, for future uh, reference, um, this show, your weekly show on the war on terror, military technology, espionage, counterespionage, uh, folksy anecdotes, and, uh, and 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 witty asides, the it already is a heck of a deep dive into all that stuff. But the third hour will be a deepy deep deep dive, and and I thought so. Coming up here at ten o'clock earlier this week on Wednesday, at the age of ninety seven. The, the youngest pilot to fly in the Battle of Britain died. And the I, I've talked pretty much once a year around this time in the summer. Uh, I, I do go out of my way to make a point of explaining to people why the British, and specifically why the RAF, and why specifically the fighter pilots of the RAF, quite literally saved Western civilization. This time in 1940, between July and October of 1940, and and I'll explain why. And when I when I explain the reasons, it, it'll be crystal clear to you uh, exactly why. Uh, Winston Churchill said, "Never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few." And if if you've ever heard that quote and you've never understood what he meant, I'll give you the context of uh, of 1940 so that you'll understand that the world we live in now was very much on the precipice right about now in 1940. But this uh, remarkable handful of men, uh, many hundreds, a little over a thousand, uh, saved Western civilization. And uh, the youngest of them, a guy who was in combat at the age of 18, flying a Spitfire at the age of 18, uh, died on Wednesday. Um, well, the little hostage drama that we had... Uh, in Silver Lake is uh, has made it to the top of the BBC. Uh, President Trump tweeting about it as well, and uh, LAPD. I guess um, a, a, a little a little over an hour ago uh, indicated that it was resolved. The the president tweeting, and I have to get this right because I have an annoying habit of reading things verbatim. Uh, the president said the last tweet. This is from three hours ago. He said, "Quote: Watching Los Angeles possible hostage situation." Very closely, active barricaded suspect LAPD working with federal law enforcement. 
close quotes. That was that was three hours ago. And then uh, when it wrapped up an hour ago, Garcetti was doing his presser. CNN was taking it live. Fox was not. Uh, and so I don't know. You know, obviously they broke. I don't. I don't know. Did they break in on other networks? I didn't. I didn't see. I was. I was working at home, or I was driving in. So I'm. I'm wondering how did the president see it? I guess I'm assuming CNN uh, at least went live. But we do know that the president watches Fox, and he hates CNN. But you know what? He does watch CNN. He follows tweets too. Yeah, so he might have got it that way. Yeah, it just seemed kind of odd to me. Here and here's the thing: as I'm driving in, Garcetti. Mayor Garcetti is at the scene. There, this is a hectic tactical situation, but the elected mayor of Los Angeles chose to arrive at a tactical site and be there. Not and in and then and I don't know how close he was. He made it sound like it was really close, but then he went about calling uh, various uh, radio stations or whatever. Not us, um, <clears throat> but uh, because then people might have heard him. I don't know, uh, but he. He uh, he called. Then about an hour ago, he did a presser. He led the presser. He, he led the police chief at at this press conference, this hasty press conference, and uh, and he thanked another city councilman, city councilman Ryu, uh, whoever it is. I don't hear about him an awful lot, but he thanked a city councilman for being there too. So he's just he's thanking all the elected officials for coming out to the ongoing tactical situation with LAPD SWAT. So. I, in my world, if I'm a police chief in very large town or tiny town, uh, or if I'm the police chief of Amity and a shark is attacking the tourists, I would tell the mayor to please back off my business and keep it to the meeting. But but uh, anyway, he, he chose to inject himself, and in doing so, he became the story. Uh, what we know now is that there is there's one dead uh, in the store, and LAPD initially said that the suspect uh, shot and killed the the victim female victim now the correction about half an hour ago or so uh, is that they do not know uh, what bullet struck the uh, the victim what we do know is uh, there was a, apparently a, a domestic squabble the gunman shot his own grandmother seven times we know that and and apparently she's improving she's gonna pull <laughs> Can through you believe that yeah she was in grave condition now that she's Critical. So I'm going to take, well, say wild stab. It, it wasn't a real large caliber handgun. Uh, and then he shot his girlfriend, and she was in the car um, as as they're driving. Hollywood Division LAPD, and this came. They came from South LA. Um, I don't know what route they got up to Hollywood, but when they got to Hollywood Division, uh, cops made contact. The guy took off. Uh, I'm assuming going eastbound on Hollywood Way or something. But he got into. You know, he's headed towards the Los Feliz area, and on Hyperion in Silver Lake, he he's shooting at cops all the way, densely, densely populated neighborhood, um, and, and somewhere on Hyperion just past the Trader Joe's. That, that is a bottleneck. Yeah. Any time of day. Yeah. He he hits a uh, a phone pole, and I don't know if, if he was distracted or he was trying to get around someone. Apparently one of his tires was out. Oh, well, okay, good. Uh, and he so so he bails at that point. Um, and so at, this is the point where, and he trades shots with LAPD. Uh, I don't, I don't know. LAPD are extremely good. The average LAPD officer, knowing that in this town, something like this can happen anytime, they're extremely good about clearing their background. And I, I'm, I'm just really skeptical that an LAPD officer would be shooting at a fleeing guy 
with the Trader Joe's in the background. So I'm I'm really uh, curious about that. The standoff goes on. You know, hostages or people who don't want to be hostages bail out of the Trader Joe's. Uh, apparently, there there were about a dozen or so in the store, and he wasn't letting them leave. Um, they were in they were in communications with the guy. Then then comes the the real eye popper here. When this guy, um, who evidently was was wounded, when he had decided to give up, he demanded a pair of handcuffs, and he handcuffed himself, or a, according to the scanner, a woman in the store assisted him, and in, he insisted on being handcuffed behind his back before he came out. So he came out pre-handcuffed, and I have never heard of that. Um, I never, ever have I, have I heard of that. He was not taking chances. You're not going to shoot me because my hands are behind my back. I got, you know, I got to say, uh, I got to say, he, he was an African American male, um, and 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 I got to say, he's pretty young guy, yeah, yeah, he's pretty cognizant of, uh, uh, you know, if he came from South LA, he knows that LAPD don't mess around. He knows that LAPD SWAT don't mess around. Um, and, every, you've been, and you've been shooting at him. Yeah, everybody uh, knows that you have been throwing down with the cops, uh, and so this guy. I'm going to take a wild stab. He may have had a run or two at a uh, at a state or county incarceratorium uh, in his past because this seems a, like a real leap to go from law-abiding Angelino uh, in the Eric Garcetti mold uh, in, in, to this. So to shooting up your grandma? Yeah, so seven times. Um, and uh, so so this is his move. He he has police send in handcuffs. He cuffs himself behind the back, and he comes out like that, knowing he's on camera. Uh, the whole thing. So I don't. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I, I actually texted a friend of mine from a extremely large Southern California law enforcement agency who used to be on on their version of SWAT for years, has years and years and years of SWAT experience. Uh, and I said, "Have you ever heard of a guy asking to come out in handcuffs?" Uh, and his answer was, "Well, he doesn't want to be shot, but never heard of it before." So um, you know, I gotta say. Maybe by accident, LAPD found out a new SOP that if you have another barricaded suspect, um, throw in some handcuffs. Yeah, and if the guy, if the guy's problem is no, I'm not coming out. You're going to shoot me. Um, yeah. Then you tell them. Then the cameras are here. These are going in. Put them on. You've got five minutes to get these things on, and come on out. And who knows? Maybe that de-escalates the situation. If a guy feels like if I'm cuffed behind my back, um, you know, there's no way they can do this. So, uh, so anyway, LAPD or uh, they'll they'll give us an answer about uh, the the victim, uh, but but regardless, there is one victim in this case. They don't know if he shot her on the way into Trader Joe's uh, or what. Anyway, that's the dark secret place. This is locals will get it. It's kind of interesting uh, that the police chief was talking about uh, tracking the car. Apparently, you know, it was a Toyota, but it was uh, it had LoJack on it or something. Yeah, uh, I guess it was Grandma's car or something like that. Uh, and so, uh, all right, when we come back, uh, Israeli intelligence have foiled a plot that uh, you, you have, you're not hearing anything about this. This is kind of a big deal. Also, for the very first time ever in history, 40-plus years of having foreign intelligence surveillance courts, the first FISA warrant uh, application has been released by the FBI today. Uh, and we'll get to that a little later on because espionage and counterespionage are part of the uh, the show and uh, the uh, Chinese long-term goals in the South China Sea, also the latest in Syria. If you're new to the Dark Secret Place, we we do updates, regional updates around the world from various contacts and things like that, and things I find interesting. So we'll get to that. All of that uh, when we come back. It is the uh, the new 8 p.m. start time 
on the Dark Secret Place. Brian sits in here until 11 on KFI AM640. More stimulating talk. Michael Chappé with the news. Forty more stimulating talk. It is the dark secret place, and if we get more details tonight about the hostage situation that resolved itself, one that didn't resolve itself, that was resolved uh, around six thirty, we will uh, pass it on to you and get you that information. Uh, the dark secret place here at a new time at eight p.m. And you can follow me on the Twitter machine at Dark Secret Place. I'm very active on Twitter. I retweet. Uh, uh, breaking news, interesting things, all uh, all sorts of stuff. Uh, try not to waste your time. Um, uh, Instagram, if you're on Instagram, then don't worry about it. But if you are, my my feed is Brian Does Junk. But really all it is is just a succession of wacky food items that are very badly labeled that I see all around the uh, the Southland, specifically at certain markets. So, uh, well, a uh, Hamas sniper. That's what the Israelis are saying. They're saying it was not a lucky shot. It wasn't a random gunfire. It was a Hamas sniper targeted an IDF uh, border uh, security army uh, unit yesterday, killing a 21-year-old staff sergeant in the IDF. The Israelis, who have been going back and forth with Hamas now for about two months, um, and they, and they, they have uh, different strike packages, as they're called, they can unleash depending on what the event was launched by Hamas. In the case of a casualty on the Israeli side, in this case, a soldier specifically shot intentionally by a sniper in the head. Um, they go to 11. They go the full meal deal on, on that one. And they were pulled back. The, the precipice of invasion was, uh, was heaving too. The Israeli military says it has begun a, quote, wide-scale attack against Hamas targets there. You're looking at video coming to us from Gaza. Israel says it's, it is in response to a shooting attack on its soldiers at the border fence between Israel and this Gaza This is CNN today. last night, and it looked, uh, and these, the Israelis are absolute experts at this. Um, if, if you're going to actually execute a ground assault into a fixed urban area. There's certain things you have to do. You have to bring up your armored vehicles on on flatbed trucks, on trailers called low boys. Uh, you have to bring up all the ash and trash, the the maintenance, the fuel, the whole thing. You have to, if you're really going to invade, then it has to, it, there, there's certain requirements. The Israelis uh, know this. We know this from Sadr City and Baghdad. We know this from uh, urban fighting in, uh, throughout Iraq. Um, and, and, and here's the deal. If you're going to make it look like you're going to invade, then you have to be serious about this as well. The Israelis are extremely good at this. You, you can't make it look like you're going to invade if you don't bring that stuff. The, uh, people in Hamas are not stupid. They're terrorists, but they're not stupid. And they know if the Israelis bring up a bunch of tanks without armored personnel carriers, they're not coming in. They're not invading. Uh, if they bring up a bunch of soldiers without armored personnel carriers or tanks, they're not coming in either. But when the Israelis bring a bunch of tanks on on trailers, a bunch of armored personnel carriers, a bunch of troops, a bunch of fuel, a bunch of maintenance, a bunch of ammo, uh, and, and including artillery, 
that's when Hamas has to have emergency meetings and say, you know what? It looks like they're invading. So the Israelis always bring the option of, guess what? This is real. They always bring that option right up to the border in, in the complete full knowledge that worldwide cameras are on them. And that's kind of the point. The, the, when the Israelis want Hamas uh, to begin reacting and think they're about to be invaded, then it does no good if they don't see it. Uh, would the Israelis ever surprise Gaza? Well, no, you really can't. Because there's a huge wide open area between the Gaza Strip and Israel. Um, Israel, again, um, and, and I know that none of you are, uh, what's her name, Antonio uh, Cortia, uh, Cortez, whatever her, her uh, the, the new Democrat candidate who's going to be elected in November in, from the Bronx, who, who was fumbling through a bunch of Occupy Wall Street talking points about Israel and Gaza until she finally, this happened on Wednesday, and I, I don't even want to play it for you. I'm embarrassed for her. But she's fumbling through the occupation forces and the occupation of Gaza and the occupation this and that. She was unaware that the Israelis actually left Gaza 10 years ago, more than 10 years ago. The Israelis literally closed up their own settlements. They, they, uh, they evacuated Israelis, Israeli citizens that had spent decades building up these settlements in Gaza. The Israeli government came there and evicted them pulled them out, and left Gaza over 10 years ago. They have not been in Gaza for 10 years. They treat it like an autonomous, independent nation. They have an observer uh, at the UN. And when a Palestinian crosses from Gaza into Israel, they're coming into a sovereign... They're leaving what's effectively a sovereign country, and they're coming into a sovereign country. That's why the Israelis, two months ago, when unarmed Palestinians, who were all part of the security wing of Hamas, most of them were... When they were individually crossing the border, they were getting shot because they were invading. They were coming in illegally. And so the Israelis know how to deal with Gaza. So what the Israeli Air Force does is that they're constantly prepared for retaliatory strikes from F-16s or Apaches. And I mean constantly. They literally have bombs ready to go depending on what the prime minister wants to do or the minister of defense. They have they have a hangar full of the full meal deal. They just need to pull the planes up. And every pilot knows the, uh, the general mission package. They take off. They have targets in Gaza. They, they enter one way. They exit another. There is heavy air traffic controlling of the uh, Israeli aviation. They shut civilian uh, air. The civilian airspace is closed about an hour before the Israelis show up. Uh, and it's almost like the coyote and the sheepdog. The, the Israelis, in this case, they lose a soldier to a sniper from inside Gaza. That's an act of war. So the Israelis go full tilt boogie on this one, and they pull out all of the important Hamas targets that they have. Most of them are underground, so how do they have them? Well, because nobody but nobody is as good as the Israelis in cultivating sources inside their enemy's infrastructure. Nobody. We're not... The Russians aren't, the Chinese aren't, the Israelis are. Because the Israelis have the luxury of knowing who the enemy is and exactly where they are. And Gaza is not that big. And so the Israelis began uh, bombing Hamas uh, administrative offices and things like that. Again, Hamas is a terrorist organization that overthrew the Palestinian Authority about 10 years ago. It took over Gaza. They've been running it into the ground. They don't make anything. They don't know what to do. They rely on European sympathy for 
charitable donations for their entire budgetary process, and they skim off the top. So it is a Ponzi scheme. It's a it's a it's a crime syndicate, and the one product that they produce, the thing they make to get the money flowing from Europe, are dead Palestinian children. And the Israelis have stopped playing that game. The Israelis uh, have now gone to a uh, technique where they simply let the Palestinians fire rockets and mortars, and they shoot down the weapons. They shoot down the ammo. They don't blow up the launch point anymore because the Palestinians were launching from schools and things like that. It's what they wanted before the Israelis to, uh, to attack the launch sites. So they found a way with this, the Iron Dome, courtesy of a huge American investment, by the way, of simply letting the Palestinians be the bad guys. You shoot all the mortars and rockets you want, these crappy homemade, handmade-in-the-basement uh, rockets, uh, we'll shoot them down. So now the Israelis have robbed the Palestinians of dead Palestinian kids. Because as it turns out, the Israelis care more about Palestinian kids than the Palestinians do. Uh, but the, the result, <clears throat> um, and, and who brokered this, by the way? Uh, I'm late. Tell you what, we'll take a break, come back. We'll wrap this up. If you know how it works between the Palestinians and the Israelis, and you're not going to be surprised about who brokered this. The Israelis were, were quote, two hours from invading Gaza, uh, close quote. And uh, a third party uh, was able to broker a ceasefire that looks like it's holding. We'll uh, get back uh, to this, plus a terror plot averted in Europe. Uh, who was going to do it and who averted it. A um, Kind of a surprise. Should be a bigger deal. It is the Dark Secret Place. New hours, 8 p.m. to 11 p.m. every Saturday night. KFI AM640. More stimulating talk. Michael Chappé with the news. KFI AM640. More stimulating talk. It is the Dark Secret Place. Brian sits in here starting at 8 p.m. Going to 11. Uh, by the way, Moni Marvez, uh, a friend, is uh, still available on podcast. Uh, she's she's still here at, uh, at KFI. You can find her at iHeartRadio, uh, her uh, her weekly podcast. So the just wrapping up the uh, the imminent ground assault that the Israelis uh, had lined up and were were ready to execute, and the the, the Hamas guys were seeing with their naked eye they're seeing the Israeli army at least a uh, a battalion of armor and infantry with with more behind them um, getting into assault positions on their side of the berm which is farther than they have come in a long long time then along comes a phone call from Egypt the Egyptians call Hamas and and this you have to know the there is no love lost between Egypt and Hamas in fact, not a lot of love lost between Egypt and the Palestinians. Uh, there was a time that the Palestinians served a purpose as sort of a fifth column for everyone else in the Arab world. But uh, that time has now passed. Egypt and Israel will not say the words allied, but uh, they're as close as the Israelis have on the ground. We don't militarily cooperate with Israel. We don't have a formal agreement, a mutual defense agreement with Israel. People don't quite understand this. We, we, it's a given, it's sort of an assumption that we'll always come to the aid of Israel, and if it comes to it, military aid. But we don't have any sort of formal agreement with the Israelis, not, not at all. Um, and, and in fact, that, that might even be a little, a little awkward uh, anyway, since the Israelis uh, attacked the U.S. Navy ship in six, 1967, but that's a different deal. <clears throat> um, the Egyptians and the Israelis cooperate very closely when they have targets in Gaza, because yes, 
The Egyptians shoot at Gaza too. That doesn't get near the press is when the Israelis do it. When, uh, when, the, when the Jews shoot it at Gaza, the world press is there. BBC, everybody's there. When the Arabs shoot at Gaza, when the Egyptians shoot at Gaza, cameras not so much. But then again, the, the Egyptians don't let the cameras uh, near. For the Israelis, in many ways, it's, it's sort of, it is kind of the point is to get cameras there. But so anyway, um, when the Egyptians, for instance, when they have a target, when the Egyptians want to strike at Hamas, they enter into Gaza airspace through Israel in Egyptian Apaches. Yes, the Egyptians fly F-16s in Apaches. Um, the Egyptians will fly uh, Apaches into Israeli airspace right over the IDF. And there have been rumors that the Israelis do the targeting for the Egyptians. Here's the Egyptians who could infiltrate Gaza. They're not nearly as successful as the Israelis. Uh, they prov- the Israelis, it's been said, uh, give the Egyptians some of their targeting data. The Egyptians service those targets or mow the lawn. Um, and then they exit back out Israeli airspace. So that's how intimate the Egyptians are with the Israelis. So, boy, you talk about, you know, a successful peace deal. So it was the Egyptians that called Hamas a couple hours ago and said, do you understand that the Israelis are approximately two hours away from invading? And and when they do, um, they're going to specifically target your seaside villas. Because Hamas has been a remarkable change of the landscape in Gaza. And this is where, uh, this is a great use of Google Earth. Uh, you, you can go back 15 years along the Mediterranean coast of Google Earth. And you will not see nearly the amount of Oceanside Villas as you see now. So there's a remarkable uh, correlation between medical and humanitarian crises in, um, in, in the words of Hamas, you know, hospitals that are out of, uh, out of basic supplies and pharmaceuticals. Yet at the same time, there's a construction boom on the Mediterranean coast. So the, and, they're, and, and guess what? They're all Hamas guys. So... That um, that would have been their, one of their targets this time. So the uh, Egyptians called Hamas and said, hey, you know what? They're serious this time. And by the way, in case you're wondering what the criteria are, one of your guys, or, or whatever, but you're getting the blame, one of your guys sniped at and killed an Israeli sergeant, a 21-year-old guy who was on their side of the line, and your guy sniped at him like it was World War I, like it was Flanders. So that's why they're doing it. We, re- we highly recommend you announced a ceasefire, so Hamas did. Uh, so there was that. Yeah, okay, so here, here she is. This is Al- Alexandria uh, Ocasio-Cortez um, on The Firing Line, which is a PBS show. It's the old William F. Buckley show, but now it's Margaret Hoover. So it's, it's not even close to the old William F. William F. Buckley show. Um, but this is uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez um, displaying her astounding acumen. This, is, this woman's going to be a congressman from, from the Bronx. And she's described as a socialist. She was in Kansas today with Bernie Sanders um, with her fist in the air. They, they call her, by the way, her nickname is She Guevara. <laughs> we, we love that. Anyway, this is her explaining uh, all about the Palestinian situation. What people are starting to see, at least in, in the occupation uh, of, of Palestine, is um, just an, an increasing crisis of humanitarian condition. And that, to me, is just where I tend to mm-hmm. come from on this issue. You use the term the occupation of Palestine. Mm. What did oh. you mean by that? Oh, um, mm-hmm. 
I think it, what I meant is like the the settlements that are increasing in, in some of these areas and and places where um, where Palestinians are experiencing uh, mm -hmm. difficulty in access to uh, their housing and homes. Do you think you can expand on that? Yeah, I mean, I think I'd also just I. I am not the expert on geopolitics on this issue. Yeah, that's been made abundantly clear. What's pretty clear is that this person who's going to be a U.S. congressman is unaware of the fact that there's no Palestine, and if there is, it's not occupied. If if it was, if there was, it was Gaza, and the Israelis have not set foot in there as occupiers for over a decade. But she's 29, and she's parroting Antifa. Uh, talking points and the whole thing. Because, you know, the occupation. It said occupation is what it is. If she's talking about the West Bank, then she really has no idea what she's talking about. All right, when we come back, a terror plot averted in Europe. Here's another hint. Mossad took the lead on this one. As Israel Hour continues, it is the dark secret place. Brian sits in here until 11 p.m. KFI 640. More stimulating talk. Michael Chappé with the news. <laughs> Forty more stimulating talk. It is the dark secret place. New time, same location, same fat ass. Eight p.m. to eleven, expanded by fifty percent. So uh, sometimes I will do. If you're just joining us, I'll do a simulcast on YouTube. Uh, my new YouTube channel is unsheepyourself.com. Uh, just exactly how it sounds like you're a sheep and you don't want to be a sheep, so you unsheepyourself.com. And I'll be doing, uh, I'll, I'll try it, you know, from the past. It's failed me in the past, but right now my a, my internet speed is 18 megs per second. So I will uh, I will take that to the bank and we'll do a live uh, YouTube stream for uh, hour number two. Also, uh, hour, hour number two, uh, we, we will take a swipe at some recent events in Californians versus the state of California in support of the Second Amendment. There, there were some... Uh, some significant uh, events from last week. We'll uh, get to that. Well, the uh, largest international terrorist infrastructure, if if I uh, held that pop quiz, some of you would say Al-Qaeda very quickly. Some of you would incorrectly say ISIS. But the correct answer, the, the world's largest um, dedicated terrorist network is the Islamic Republic Revolutionary Guard Corps, the IRGC, from Iran. Uh, the IRGC blew up the uh, the uh, Jewish uh, Jewish uh, care center in Argentina. Uh, the IRGC have even done things here in the, in the United States, uh, where they where they do have ample assets who may not work full time for them, but nevertheless are uh, are assets for uh, for the IRGC. Uh, they also are fairly craven. They really don't care about what sort of agreements the Iranian government, uh, the mullahs, are trying to uh, execute. Whether that's, by the way, the the Iran nuclear deal. Now, recall Trump tore up the nuclear deal. He tore up the American part of the the uh, uh, Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the JCPOA, uh, as it's called. The Europeans are still full speed ahead. And then remember, uh, Putin on Monday. Um, even admonished the United States for, for getting out of the Iran nuke deal, right? So the Iranians are supposed to be acting like the good kids, like they've learned their lesson and the whole thing. Well, 
Mossad, Israeli Secret Service, has brought uh, into the fold uh, French intelligence, Belgian, Italian, uh, Austrian, and German to assist in breaking up a terror plot. Uh, it works like this. There was an organization formed in the early 60s called the MEK, the People's Mujahideen of uh, Iran. And in the 1960s, their goal was to overthrow the Shah of Iran. So, of course, uh, very quickly, the United States declared them a terrorist organization. Uh, the Islamic Revolution happens, the Shah is out, the mullahs are in, and the MEK changed their target from the Shah to now the Islamic regime. And they were a terrorist organization, according to the U.S. State Department, um, uh, from 1997 until 2012. In 2012, Washington took the terrorist organization designation off of the MEK. Um, they have promised to turn away from violence. In fact, they were fairly ineffective for decades. The Europeans took the MEK off their terrorist list in 2008. Uh, we did it in 2012. And now what the MEK is is basically a lobbying organization uh, and then they hold a uh, annual confab somewhere. So they were going to hold it this year in Europe. 25,000 dissidents, all of them Iranian, calling for the overthrow of the mullahs or a change in government somehow, were going to meet in Paris, in a suburb of Paris. There are, uh, you remember the Ayatollah Khomeini, when he was exiled by the Shah, he lived in exile in France. And he actually was very sympathetic to France. Um, and so the MEK's annual meetup was going to be in a, in a uh, suburb of, of Paris. Uh, who is under arrest right now? Well, the Iranian ambassador to Austria, um, who, as it turns out, was really not much of a diplomat. He has his traditional 5 o'clock shadow, which is, I believe, uh, issued by the Iranian government. Uh, he was the guy who was activating different cells across Europe to execute a bombing attack on the MEK meeting in Paris. So Mossad gets winds of it, wind of it. They alert the Austrians. Uh, I don't know how effective the Austrians are on their on their own. They also uh, alert the, the Germans. There are th uh, thousands of Iranians living in Germany. Most of them, just like here in the U.S., uh, just want to not live in Iran. But the Iranians aren't stupid. They know that that's a great place to plant sleepers uh, and, and, and other assets as either spies or terrorists. So the, this uh, uh, multinational plot involving uh, Iranians living in Germany, the uh, Iranian ambassador to Austria, as well as Iranians living in France, we're going to blow up, uh, we're going to make a gigantic bomb and blow up this uh, dissident convention. Uh, Mossad uh, organized the whole thing. Local intelligence agencies um, took it under their wing, and, uh, and it's broken up. So... You're not, it's not a big deal. Why it's not, I mean, pardon me, it's not in, in the press, it's not a big deal. Why, I don't know. Um, why a European reaction on this uh, is not a little more vocal? Because, of course, the Europeans have been the ones saying, oh, no, no, now that the Iranians are signing this deal, this shows that they want to turn the corner, change the nature of their regime, uh, the whole thing. They're, th that's what they've been saying. Um, my spidey sense tells me that. The European media and some European government officials will say, well, they only did this because you guys got out of the Iran nuke deal. And the the retort to that is, then why wasn't there an American target? Why, if you guys are supporting that nuke deal, 
and you're the ones criticizing the U.S. for getting out of it, why were they prepared to kill several hundred people on French soil? The French, uh, Macron, Emmanuel Macron, has been one of the loudest critics of Trump getting out of the Iranian nuke deal. The Iranians were prepared to kill several, several hundred people, many of them French citizens, on French soil under Macron's watch in Paris. So the question is, why are you guys uh, rewarding them with lowered sanctions and, uh, and the rest of that? Uh, next hour, we will visit the latest out of Syria, talk about the, uh, the Putin-Trump uh, meetup, what we know uh, so far about what Trump and Putin talked about behind closed doors because Putin walked out of the room to his podium. He walked out of the meeting room with his notes in his hand. And you can read and translate the notes. What did his notes say? And were we meant to see them? Uh, that and more coming up. Hour number two of The Dark Secret Place, a new three-hour version of The Dark Secret Place, 8 p.m. to 11, KFI, AM 640, more stimulating talk. Dark Secret Place. This radioactivity is coming from Brian Suits on KFI. I would bomb the shit out of him. Dark Secret Place with Brian Suits on KFI. KFI AM, 640 more stimulating talk. It is the Dark Secret Place. Brian Suits in here until 11, starting at 8. In here till 11. And uh, in the third hour, the 10 o'clock hour, uh, we're going to go and do a deep dive on the Battle of Britain, uh, the, uh, the event that Saved Western civilization uh, at this time in 1940. Coming up on the, uh, I guess that would be the 79th anniversary of it next year as well. There's a bunch of, bunch of commemorations next year. Uh, the 75th anniversary of D-Day is going to feature a mass C-47 uh, flight. 15, 15 flyable C-47s. Most of them probably, by, by the way, not made during World War II, uh, probably post-World War II. Well, there's going to be a mass C-47 flight with several hundred paratroopers dressed in original gear uh, for D-Day's 75th anniversary uh, next year. The reason I mention that is is that there is a there's a charity called Dakotas over D-Day or Dax over D-Day. One of the C-47s, one of the original C-47s that has been maintained meticulously since it was built in World War II. Uh, it was a beautiful plane. It was in its original bare metal. And the C, the DC three C forty seven is a beautiful plane anyway, but this one was maintained in its uh, original pre war bare metal with red, white, and blue American markings and all this. It was destroyed today uh, in a crash, I believe, in in Texas. Uh, nobody was injured. Eleven people. There were eleven passengers. Uh, they got out, but the aircraft burned on the ground. A uh, uh, over seventy five year uh, old plane. Uh, just terrible. Very 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 sucky is uh, what I would how I would uh, describe it. Well, um <clears throat> FISA in in the in the history of the FISA court, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court and the uh and a and the FISA warrant, they have never ever ever had one released after a Freedom of Information Act finding. But uh the New York Times I guess generated this and uh the FISA warrant for one Dr. Carter Page was released today, and uh, some some fairly shocking findings, uh, by the way. And then the other thing here in Espionage Hour, uh, Julian Assange probably is going to get the bums rush from the Ecuadorian embassy 
later on this next week. So we'll uh, we'll get to that. Um, we'll we'll start before we get to Helsinki. Uh, let, let's start with where is the United States on Syria? Um, an, an American fighting for ISIS has uh, made it back here to the U.S. and he will stand trial for uh, giving aid and cover to, to an enemy of the United States. You know, and the whole thing. But what about the many thousands of Americans who are still on the ground in Syria uh, in the form of very, very conventional artillery um, all the way up to very, very elite special operations uh, from from Green Berets, to U.S. Army Rangers, Navy SEALs now have been in and out of Syria for over three years. Uh, Delta Force uh, operating uh, with in, indigenous trained uh, Syrian forces, not Assad's guys, our guys. Uh, and the Syrian Kurds, the uh, the YPG. So, so what is the latest American policy on Syria? You know, recall th- this has been a hell of a two months. Trump left Singapore convinced that North Korea had somehow agreed to quote denuclearize close quote. In between that and now, uh, this uh, at a rally, I, I believe this is in Michigan. Um, uh, President Trump speaking. Whoops, that's not at all. Uh, it's uh, President Trump speaking. Syria came up on Syria to a surprise, it seemed, to the president's own advisors. President uh, not mentioning Russia yesterday in that speech, but he did say this on Syria. Have a listen. We're knocking the hell out of ISIS. We'll be coming out of Syria like very soon. Let the other people take care of it now. Very soon. Very soon. We're coming out. We're going to have a hundred percent of the caliphate, as they call it. Sometimes referred to as land, We've taking it all back quickly, quickly. Uh, but we're going to be coming out of there real soon. So, so, so that statement. Surprised- so there you go. That is national policy, and um, that was a bit of a surprise to the Pentagon because the last agreement um, that Secretary Mattis, who, who by the way, he he he's a good trooper. He didn't say that day or the next day uh, that that was news to him. He said that, that he's, he's in perfect alignment with that. He's had this discussion with the president. They're on the same page. Uh, there's no gap. But the fact of the matter is that's not the understanding that troops on the ground have in Syria and troops spinning up to go to Syria. It's not their understanding at all. Their understanding is the, the defense policy in Syria is that we are going to stay there and train the SDF, the so-called Syrian Defense Forces, uh, who are made up of largely Sunni Syrians um, under under American command and influence, um, and as well as the Syrian Kurds, the YPG. Uh, that was the understanding, and the, part of the cooperation that we received from them uh, came because of the promise that we would not cut and run. Uh, and so that policy was a bit of, su- of a surprise to the people on the ground. Uh, there are especially the Kurds, who got especially pissed off at that. Um, as it turns out, it does not look like anybody is leaving Syria soon. In fact, certain American fobs are actually expanding. Uh, there's one very large forward operating support base in eastern Syria uh, that has a large dirt runway. Uh, C-17s are flying in there. And the flights have become so regular and so crucial that they're going to go ahead and pave it. Then that's that ain't getting out. So, so anyway, the, the policy between what the Oval Office says and what's happening on the ground, there is a huge gap. There's an enormous gap. And I don't know if President Trump is aware of this or if it's too much in the details for him. 
he he has one of the things I give him credit for um, is he has admitted that he he doesn't uh, understand he doesn't want to hear the daily details the comings and goings of who are you going to drone in Pakistan how many hundred troops are moving from Western Syria to Eastern Syria the whole thing he he lets the people on the ground operate or do that stuff uh, and they are doing it with very little interference because uh, Obama was famous for getting right down into the drone strikes. Um, and having a briefing room where he had to see live video of every single minute of the bin Laden raid. And when the super secret stealth Blackhawk went down, you know, there's that, that photo of Hillary holding her breath and all that. And I mean, uh, you know, I, I guess I would be hard to resist the temptation to do that, but, uh, Donald Trump is not that guy. He doesn't want these details. He's not interested in the details. What might change that? What might change it politically would be a large American loss in a single incident, like a helicopter goes down or something like that. Because at this point, in July of 2018, if 10 Americans died in a helicopter crash tomorrow, most of America would say, in Syria? I knew we were, were in Syria, but why are we in Syria again? Um, so that, that might make it politically untenable. But I got to say... Uh, I, I think in, in, here in the 17th year of the war on terror, Americans are more disconnected uh, than ever before to their military and seem to get over uh, incidents like that more quickly than, than the past. It, it seems that the opposition, now that they're not in the White House, now that it's not their Pentagon, <clears throat> the, the media uh, spends more time with that type of thing. But uh, so anyway, that's, that's what's going on. Uh, in Syria as as we speak. And if, if you're new to the show, uh, there's certain things uh, that you have to get correct right up front uh, because you didn't hear about it a heck of a lot in the American media. But back in February, uh, there is a Russian mercenary corporation called the Wagner Group, the Wagner Group, uh, and they recruit former Russian servicemen and they send them back to Syria as private uh, military contractors, as PMCs. Uh, this is twofold. Uh, they're cheaper than sending your own troops there. Uh, secondly, when they die, you don't have to officially admit it because they're not actually Russian servicemen. People still die. They just don't do it in your uniform. They do it in the uniform of a private contractor. Well, back in February, uh, a uh, American special operations-led team on the ground was seeing uh, several hundred of these Russian mercenaries coming toward them, didn't know who they were, uh, they thought they were Syrian Assad guys, uh, they got permission to light up this apparent ground assault near the American position. Uh, they used air support and artillery, uh, helicopters, AC-130s, the whole thing. When the dust settled the next morning around 5 a.m., uh, whoever these guys were, they were allowed to take their dead and their wounded away. Turned out to be Russians. Turned out that we killed about 250 of them. And we know this from social media because their girlfriends and their wives uh, we're posting it on their various Facebook and uh, VK sites. So you must know that. If you listen to my show, you need to know several things about uh, recent history. That happened back in February. And so whenever we talk about Russia, keep in mind, this this is a big story in Russia. It doesn't lead the national state-owned news like RT. They don't like admitting it. But uh, you need to know that when we talk about Russia. All right. Uh, when we come back, uh, yeah, the uh, Putin-Trump summit or meeting in Helsinki uh what what is the I'm not going to go blow by blow on the press conference 
you can have your own opinion about that. But where are we on that? And what's the uh, the next step in the aftermath? Uh, it is a dark secret place. Brian suits in here until 11 o'clock. Next hour, we'll talk about the Battle of Britain and how it saved our civilization. That and more KFI AM 640, more stimulating talk. Michael Chappé with the news. You got no fear of the underdog. That's why you will not survive. KFI, AM 640, more stimulating talk. It is the Dark Secret Place. Brian sits in here until 11, everybody. Hey, good body, everybody. That's a little morning show talk there. Um, we'll talk about the Battle of Britain, a deep, deep, deep dive. This show's subtitle is The Deepest Dive on KFI. But at 10 o'clock, we'll talk about the Battle of Britain and how a handful of men saved Western civilization. Or as Winston Churchill said, uh, never in the field of human conflict have so has so much been owed by so many to so few, and I'll I'll, I'll tell you who the uh, so few are. All right. So in the aftermath of the uh, Helsinki press conference, I don't know about the secret meeting behind closed doors. Uh, I, I do know that the Russians taped it. Why do I know that? Well, because suits razor. Why wouldn't they? Please give me a reason why they wouldn't. Um, bad faith in the part of the Russians uh, is not a, a deterrent, um, or rather, uh, I should say, uh, detriment or uh, or some sort of American uh, sanction for their bad faith has is not a deterrent to them, uh, because so far they have continued to lie about Syria, about interfering in our election and the whole thing, and then Putin did it. Uh, on Monday, but then again, it was a remarkable moment when Putin was asked specifically, did you want Donald Trump to win, and did you order any of your uh, intelligence services to assist him? And he said, yes, we wanted him to win, which shouldn't be a surprise to anyone. Uh, didn't They didn't want him to win as much as they wanted Hillary to lose, but uh, we'll, we'll get to that. I thought overall the press conference was disastrous um, because Trump seemed distracted um, and he doesn't seem able to focus, and I don't think he really understands the significance of of, of Russia's threat to the European order. Uh, but I've been consistent on that since 2015, and I'm not going to waste your time going back into the archives of the Dark Secret Place. But uh, I will remind you, if you want to do it, I can aim you at June of 2016, right before the Democratic National Convention, when uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz emails were released and they were embarrassing uh, and she had to resign, that was the moment that you knew that there was not some teenage hacker in Hungary in his mommy's basement wearing a, a, a wife beater, you know, and, and, and playing Fortnite who did that. That was an intelligence service. Not that it required a really sophisticated hack, but the uh, I have no doubt in my mind that the Russians did that because also, by the way, um, if another fundamental rule here on the Dark Secret Place, another assumption that I assume you all know is that WikiLeaks is at best Russian-influenced. At worst, it is a front for Russian intelligence. Um, so we'll, we'll tell you, I'll tell you about uh, Julian Assange getting kicked out of uh, the Ecuadorian embassy a little later on this week. So anyway, what, um, uh, what some uh, media outlets did as Putin and Trump walked out of their meeting room, Putin held his notes with both hands forward. He had them sort of, they're, they're sort of eight by ten. No, I'm sorry, not eight by ten, but they're, 
They're under that. They're like five by seven, like one of those smaller yellow legal pads. And he, they were individual pages, and they were clipped together. And uh, in Russian, in his own handwriting, there was black ink. And as he walked out, we we could see one page, one page with handwritten notes. And so a uh, a translator was uh, asked, a, a person, an, an expert in uh, a native speaker, not native, but a, a colloquial uh, speaker uh, of Russian, Julia Davis, um, a investigative reporter, Russian media analyst. Uh, she's a featured expert at the Atlantic Council. Uh, she runs RussianMediaMonitor.com. So she looked at Putin's notes in a super zoom-in, high-definition picture, and she translated his handwritten notes. So we don't know, of course, what was uh, spoken of behind closed doors, but we do know that the handwritten notes that Putin came out with uh, from the top line down, these are the words that can be translated from Putin's notes. Interference, very top of the page. Mueller, the in English, M-U-E-L-L-E-R. In, in Russian, it's Cyrillic. It's, it's, uh, it's phonetic. But anyway, Mueller. The next word, proposal. The next word, agreement. And then 19-9, we don't know. Uh, the uh, the next numeral, but it's probably a 1999 agreement that we're talking about. Uh, next word, Ukraine. Uh, next line, new ideas. And then his fingers obscure the end of the sentence. And then below that, it says to develop. And then next line, Nord Stream, transit. Nord Stream is the name of the uh, the one gas pipeline coming out of Russia to uh, to Western Europe. And then you have to get all the way down because his hands obscure several words. And you see uh, the word arbitrage in, and then we don't know the next word. And then at the bottom, Syria Joint Humanitarian Operations uh, with the goal of creating conditions for the return of refugees. And those are the notes that uh, we can see that that uh, Putin took or that he brought out of the closed-door meeting with, with Trump. Does that mean that those were notes he took in the meeting? We don't know. Are those the ones that he came in with? Doesn't seem likely because of the words interference Mueller proposal, uh, et cetera. It, it seems like what, what we're hearing about, partially what Trump talked about, was this joint investigation, which is part of the reason you don't go in there by yourself, because the notion of a joint American uh, investigation uh, and then the thing that Putin was talking about, a joint cybersecurity effort, that's laughable. That is absolutely ridiculous. But um, so anyway, it says Mueller proposal something, uh, and tr- Trump, intimated something about that, that that uh, he proposed some sort of joint investigation uh, into influence or interference in the American election. Um, th- that is going to die a quiet death uh, in Washington, D.C. That is not going to happen, uh, period. Especially, by the way, with today's release of the FBI FISA warrant for Carter Page, for Dr. Carter Page. So there's, uh, there's that. Uh, well, anyway, it's, and, and I, I'll listen. Um, I've, I, I, I am a lifelong Republican. My, I have underwear that have been Republican longer than Donald Trump. Um, and, and you know where I stand on this. And if you are a always Trumper, listen, I, you know that I have, uh, I, I will grant, uh, that, that I, I'm a outcome-based results-based guy. I like low unemployment. I like a booming economy. I don't think, uh, a tariff war with China is real smart. And it's uh, and already in vote states that voted for Trump, they're already seeing the cost there. 
But the one of the things I do like about Trump and a Trump foreign policy, I do not like him questioning the existence of NATO, whether or not he would defend Montenegro and all that. He clearly doesn't understand NATO. But what I what I do like um, is that he he has, for instance, the North Koreans at least second guessing and reacting to things he said, uh, unlike the slow, methodical plotting pace of the Barack Obama administration, and before them, the nothing done about North Korea. If if there is blame to go around for why North Korea has an H-bomb in 2018, why they tested it in 2017, why they have it, it's because not enough was done before they got to that point with George Bush. The North Koreans tested their first nuke in 2005 on Bush's watch. Nothing was done. Why did they do that, by the way? Because they knew that we were overstretched and that uh, Bush would do nothing. Um, anything after that uh, for the Obama administration, uh, at that point, the question is, well, what should he have done? Should he have gone to full-out war with North Korea? Well, time might say yes. Uh, we, we don't know. But nothing was done. Um, Bush gets uh, the most blame for that. Obama, secondly— um, at at least Trump is getting motion out of the North Koreans. I think he's going to be badly disappointed. I don't think he really understands that there's not going to be a denuclearization out of North Korea um, and that he's going to have to find a way <clears throat> to polish a turd. And it's probably going to wind up uh, with whatever happens is going to be called denuclearization, but it's not going to entail North Korea actually getting rid of their nukes. All right, I'm way, way late. We'll be back right after this. It is the Dark Secret Place. Brian suits in here until 11. KFI AM640, more stimulating talk. Michael Chappay with the news. So much better when you don't queue it up. KFI AM640, more stimulating talk. It is the dark secret place. Brian Suits. And here until 11 because we started at 8 o'clock. The new uh, three-hour dark secret place starting at 8 p.m. Uh, well, so uh, wrapping up the Trump and Putin Helsinki summit again. The American ambassador John Huntsman, who uh, uh, was was the ambassador to China because he speaks Mandarin, uh, he was uh, Obama's ambassador to China. He's now the U.S. ambassador to Russia, and he he is a very sharp guy. And I'm glad he's there, the whole thing. And then I get word is he's actually learning Russian because he has that in his DNA because he's Mormon. Um, and so the uh, the deal is right before the summit, he was sent out there to say, look, this is not a summit. Summits have agendas. Summits have a goal. Uh, summits have a point, a central thing. Th this is a meeting uh, to sort of clear the air about stuff and to make it. Um, uh, make some American positions known to Putin. And so uh, what positions were known, what was talked about with NATO, uh, we don't know. Uh, one, one of the discouraging things for me was the two interviews that Trump gave uh, there in Helsinki before he left Helsinki, uh, one to Sean Hannity, but the other to Tucker Carlson, also of Fox News. Um, and Tucker Carlson was making the point that if Montenegro got aggressive. Uh, he wouldn't want his son to have to go defend Montenegro. And for the record, his son's name is Buckley. He's not in the military. Um, he is far outside the window of, of draftable age. 
And that's one of the most loathsome shields anyone can do. There's a friend of mine who's, who's very left, and, and she'll say, you're not taking my son for your war on North Korea or whatever. Her son's not in the military. He's also out of uh, the, the draft window. Um, and for Tucker Carlson, who, again, conservative guy, um, physically capable, but for some reason, uh, between the ages of uh, 18 and 26, uh, he, he chose not to go in the U.S. military, but rather to burnish his brand and wear bow ties and the whole thing. Now, now he is, and he and I, same age, out of the same Cold War, uh, now he's bringing up his son for some anti-NATO tirade. And Trump clearly doesn't understand NATO again because he didn't shoot him down and say, uh, well, that's not how NATO works uh, there, Tucker. But uh, the, here's part, part of the thing that you need to know uh, is that the, the idea where Montenegro gets aggressive and then somehow skips three countries and goes and, and, and gets to, uh, to, to Russia uh, or, or whatever is, you know, NATO has been around since 1949. Probably one of the greatest crises in NATO was when Turkey uh, militarily occupied the eastern part of Cyprus, which has been an island with Turks and Greeks on it for thousands of years. Um, and it was a little bit of an uncomfortable moment for NATO because Article 5 of NATO says that if one nation is attacked by an external enemy, it will be treated as an attack on all the NATO allies. Well, no one, no one had ever thought, what if a NATO ally attacks another NATO ally? So that's the reason we didn't get, go to war with ourselves uh, in uh, 1974. But the, the notion that one nation on its own would get aggressive is also uh, sort of belies the fact that you don't understand how NATO works. So I, uh, the, the press conference was an animal unto itself. Um, I, I, I didn't like it. I, didn't, I don't like the way Trump comes off in that format anyway. I don't like the way that he reflexively goes back to an election that's now coming up on two years old. And, and this is something where I don't I, – I think because he's so petulant and immature when it comes to this – I don't think he really understands that most Americans, you know, it's it's just not really very American to keep spiking the football. Um, it it just it's not part of the winners' culture that we're supposed to have here, where we don't remember who lost the Super Bowl last year and the year before, the year before. But have you heard the Seahawks, you know, talking about a Super Bowl victory from four years ago constantly? You'd say get over it, right? And so for for uh, the the penultimate, or I guess the ultimate moment um, that I really wish the mics had gone out was when President Trump uh, said that, uh, yes, he acknowledges that the American intelligence community uh, had said that uh, there was Russian interference. Uh, however, President Putin said very, very strongly that he didn't. That was the moment that I cringed because um, if if you have not been following along, Putin's a bad guy, and he is the bad guy in 2016. He is not a good guy, and the and the notion that this is now the third president who says that if Putin says that I believe him, I mean, remember Bush said I looked into his eyes and saw his soul. What? I hope his dad slapped him. Except that'd be illegal. But I wonder what happens if a former president. Slaps a sitting president. Who takes precedent? Who takes president precedent? But I hope George H.W. Bush slapped his son when Putin came to Crawford, Texas, 
and they're bombing around in a pickup. <clears throat> and and Putin is still a Czechist. He's still a KGB guy right down to his DNA. And Bush said, I looked into his soul. I looked, I looked into his eyes and saw his soul. What? GTFO. And then Obama said something almost identical uh, to the entire thing. And now um, seeing Trump, who, who this is the contradiction for Trump, he's surrounded by people who know better. Okay, the best appointment he's made and, and continues to, to serve is Jim Mattis as Secretary of Defense. Mattis knows full well that Putin is a POS, complete piece of S. He knows that. Trump likes Mattis, so Mattis says this. Pompeo, former director of the CIA, now Secretary of State, um, I'm getting the feeling more and more and more that he likes the job more than he likes the truth, um, or that he knows that if he sits down and tells Trump, I have good news and bad news. The good news is the North Koreans are answering my phone calls again. The bad news is they have translated denuclearize and they're not going to do it. So we need to come up with goal two. Um, so I, I like that. I still like John Kelly as chief of staff. I'm not quite sure what his, uh, his effect is. But to see an American president, and this is where if, if you are older than 40 and you remember the Cold War, please defend this. Please defend this to me. Would, would Ronald Reagan ever stood up on a stage in Iceland or West Germany with Gorbachev or anybody and side with the Soviet? Would he have ever done that? He never would have because he knows that everything out of the Russian is a lie. I didn't, I didn't invade Crimea. They wanted me there. Um, that's not an invasion of Ukraine. Those are uh, in, indigenous Militant groups. In fact, we should have a referendum there and find out if they want to be part of Russia. I didn't shoot down Malaysia Flight 17, but then my drunken thugs stripped the bodies and pose with dead children. No, that wasn't me. Um, and so it it may not be the Soviet Union anymore. There may be a different coat of paint on the barbed wire and different letterhead on the KGB's uh, logo. But that's what happened. And so I was disturbed by that. I was deeply disturbed. And because I know this, um, if politically... Trump realizes he now has to go hard on Russia, then he is in for a really bad surprise because if you think the Russians only hacked the Democrats in 2016, you're really naive. And if you don't think that Putin has a recording of that entire two-hour meeting and at a time and place of his choosing, if he chooses it's time to embarrass Trump, he will do it. And, man, then he will have a wake-up, won't he? We'll be back right after this. It is the Dark Secret Place. Brian Suits uh, back in a second. Some Second Amendment news right here in the state of California. Some good news out of the Ninth Circuit Court when we come back. Uh, KFI M640, more stimulating talk. Michael Chappé with the news. in here for three hours, the Dark Secret Place. Now at its 10th anniversary, by the way. Uh, and starting at 8 p.m., going to uh, 11 p.m. Actually, coming up in December, it'll be the 11th anniversary. I should probably go back and look at my own calendars. So uh, We started when the great Captain Dale Dye, the actor, uh, technical advisor, author, novelist, if you know him, uh, he had a show here on KFI. It was sort of a military-based uh, show our military topic show, and he went to help HBO make their 
Marine series, the Pacific. And so he left. So the boss said, could you take over that show and, uh, and do something sort of military-ish uh, like? And so that was uh, how the Dark Secret Place was born. And <clears throat> I'm going to have to rely on you longtime listeners. I, I believe the show started on Saturdays, I think. I remember being a little bummed about missing uh, football, uh, college football. But then I remembered Then I went to Washington State University. And in a way, it was kind of a blessing to uh, miss Cougar games 10 years ago. Uh, and then it moved to Sunday, and um, uh, then it, uh, it moved uh, somewhere else. Uh, we don't talk about the gap. We, we, we call it the gap year, which was a dark secret place on uh, La Cienega. Uh, but then uh, back here a couple years ago, so coming up on our 11th uh, anniversary. Uh, one of the things we talk about, if uh, you're new to the show, is specifically uh, gun rights, gun possession, legal gun possession in the state of California. We just saw... Of course, one of those horrific uh, incidents where somebody was breaking California law and a four-year-old got access to a handgun and killed a two-year-old uh, relative, I think sister. And the the owner, the grandfather, uh, is under arrest because that is a big, 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 big deal here in California. Other states are kind of slow to do this. Um, and and they, they consider a loaded handgun on a table where children have access to it uh, to be just an unfortunate accident. When uh, here here in California, this is one of the things where, and I caution Second Amendment um, uh, oriented people like like me. When when something reasonable comes along, um, you you have to score points by um, making sure the other side knows that you can be reasonable and that you can agree on reasonable things, and you will assist in passing that kind of legislation because it reinforces what all of us responsible gun owners do. Uh, and so uh, that way, by the way, you you have uh, something to hold over their head uh, next time they want to ramrod something, which they've done. And of all circuit courts in the country, one of the things that emboldens the anti-gun uh, Democrats here in the state of California is that their decisions are reviewed by the Ninth Circuit Court. And they simply assume that the Ninth Circuit will tolerate any kind of uh, constitutional outrage, like an ex post facto law. You know, there, one of the reasons, one of the things that we cite uh, for the American Revolution was the use of so-called ex post facto laws, making something retroactively illegal, right? A, 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 a rival businessman is left-handed, you know, and so you pass a law that left-handed businessmen are, cannot be licensed or whatever. That's called an ex post facto law. The British were really good at that. Well, the assault weapon ban, the current assault weapon ban uh, that dropped on July 1st is an ex post facto law. The, this item that was legal uh, one minute before midnight was suddenly illegal. They, they wouldn't let you grandfather in the ones that you have. The thing that you had had to be modified. That clearly is unconstitutional, but it'll take years. So anyway, there was a victory. A three-judge panel of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals has upheld a lower court's decision to halt the implementation of Prop 63. That was passed by California voters in 2016. It set in motion the prohibition of magazines that hold more than 10 rounds of ammunition. Um, this is <clears throat> um, what was said by uh, California Rifle and Pistol Association, quote, uh, pardon me, gun owners of California, Sam Parides, said this is a stunning smackdown of Lieutenant Governor Gavin Newsom's anti-gun agenda. 
This decision is encouraging, especially since this will likely be appealed to the full court. In the immediate aftermath of Prop 63, a legal challenge was initiated, uh, Duncan versus Becerra, uh, on, on behalf of California Rifle and Pistol Association. This is when Javier was attorney general. Um, it cited violations of the Second Amendment, due process, and private property taking without compensation. In June of 2017, just days prior to the implementation, a U.S. District Court judge agreed with the challenge and said, quote, it amounts to the government taking people's property without compensation. In other words, um, it was banning 30-round magazines. You, you own 30-round magazines for years. You've never committed a crime. California decides those are suddenly illegal instead of grandfathering them in. Now you got to get rid of them. So there was no talk of compensation or anything. Uh, of the three judges on the Ninth Circuit panel, one dissented with uh, that ruling back in 2017. Uh, there's a strong possibility it'll be appealed to the full panel of the uh, Ninth Circuit. Uh, so at that point, we don't know uh, what happens. But the, the Ninth Circuit, in, in, in prior rulings, and here's the thing, if it's property, um, then the Ninth Circuit, like most uh, U.S. Circuit Courts, come out in favor of the property owner. And if the state of California is saying, um, hey, we're not going to ban this piece of property, this thing, it was legal one second, now it's not legal, this 30-round magazine, you, if you, we're not grandfather, grandfathering them in. If you have them, you got to get rid of them, and uh, we are not compensating you. So the I have faith that the Ninth Circuit Court will strike that down. And California, uh, Prop 63 was badly written, uh, and it was badly reviewed. The, the one secret weapon for pro-Second Amendment people in California is that, by and large, because the anti-gun people are not able to sit there and, and war game and objectively read their own laws and propositions, that they, they tend to come, when the ink dries, um, they, they tend to look really unconstitutional. They do it really carelessly. And, and so, uh, like I say, the law requiring, if kids are in the house, a weapon has to be locked up, and uh, I'll clarify. I, I believe it has to be unloaded and locked up. I'm, I'm not exactly positive of that. I think that's excessive, if that is, and I, I, wouldn't, I would encourage you all to obey the law in every way, uh, shape, and form, as well as uh, defend your home. Uh, so there's that. Uh, we'll be back right after this. Uh, the young men who saved Western civilization uh, at this time of the year in 1940. Who were the guys who saved Western civilization? It's an amazing story. I'll remind you of it when we come back. A deep dive into the Battle of Britain on the Dark Secret Place, KFI, AM640, more stimulating talk. Dark Secret Place. This radioactivity is coming from Brian Suits on KFI. I would bomb the shit out of him. Dark Secret Place with Brian Suits on KFI. Okay, if I am 640 more stimulating talk, it is a dark secret place. Brian sits in here. Three hours, starting at 8 o'clock now, going all the way to 11. And in this uh, third hour, starting here at uh, 10 o'clock, we will do from time to time deep dives, deep, deep, dark secret dives. And a uh, a man, squadron leader Wellem, uh, died on Wednesday at the age of 97. He was a Battle of Britain pilot. He was commissioned and entered active service as a Spitfire pilot in uh, May of 1940. He died Wednesday at the age of 97 in Britain. Uh, he was the, the reason Jeffrey Wellam 
Uh, squadron leader Jeffrey Harris Augustus Wellam, Distinguished Flying Cross. The reason that he's significant is because in the entire Battle of Britain, he was, <clears throat> he was the youngest pilot. He was 18 years old in May of 1940. This guy was 18 years old when he was handed a Spitfire uh, that he had several hours on. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Britain had been at war for several months, by uh, for over six months, by May of 1940. In fact, the British Army were busy being surrounded at the beach at Dunkirk when he first flew his uh, Spitfire. So he went right into the fire uh, as he left training. And the events that he witnessed and that uh, he affected uh, in being one of the handful, the several hundred uh, to the lower thousands RAF pilots, as well as uh, as allied pilots, pilots from uh, Czechoslovakia, Poland, uh, Canada, and then the Commonwealth, uh, South Africa, uh, Australia, New Zealand, etc. That the and and then the American volunteers, the so-called uh, Eagle Squadron. The achievement that they would gain in the next few months would have the effect, um, no less than saving Western civilization uh, as we know it. It would be far, far different had these men not succeeded. And uh, what's really remarkable to me about your uh, about your Winston Churchill is that he uh, he was aware of this in August of 1940 with, uh, with with lots of war to go. In fact, the Battle of Britain had not even reached its its real crescendo yet. The the thinking was that the Germans were still preparing to invade. Uh, Churchill saw the scale of what was going on and he he explained it to the British people uh, f- uh in a speech that became famous for its final line. So I backed it up about 30 seconds, but uh the, the, the phrase never was so much owed by so many to so few. Are saved and soon again, in many cases, come into action. The gratitude of every home in our island, in our empire, and indeed throughout the world, except in the abodes of the guilty, goes out to the British airmen who, undaunted by odds, unwearied in their constant challenge and mortal danger, are turning the tide of the world war by their prowess and by their devotion. Never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. And that was August 20th, 1940. So what's the situation? Well, Britain stood alone. This is often, and we are guilty. We are guilty of writing our own history. And uh, to, to the United States, officially, World War II started on December 7th, 1941. Uh, that is not the dispute. Uh, to the British Empire, World War II started, and to the Germans, World War II started on September 1st, 1939, when the Germans invaded Poland, uh, bringing Britain and France into the war uh, by treaty and by agreement. Uh, it's often lost in history that the Russians were busy invading Poland. Two weeks later, the Russians invaded Poland from their side, from the eastern side. But the, uh, the Russians don't like us reminding them uh, of that. And no one, uh, no one liked uh, the Russians didn't like you reminding them of that at the, t- at the time. Um, and so this was September of 1939. Uh, the period between September uh, and uh, May of 1940 was called the Sitzkrieg. As they, the, the Germans used the Blitzkrieg to overrun Poland 
And then in the Western Front, when it was really obvious that the Germans wanted France next, uh, and it was called the Sitzkrieg because nothing happened. In the interim, uh, Hitler invaded uh, Denmark and Norway. There was a brief uh, escapade where uh, Churchill tried to oppose the Germans in Norway. But those effectively were sideshows, and he wasn't prime minister yet anyway. Um, he was the, uh, the uh, uh, minister for war. And so by 1940, <clears throat> uh, pardon me, by May of 1940, uh, late May and early June, France is knocked out of the war. The majority of France's combat power, their army, uh, surrenders. Uh, this huge section, uh, a huge amount of British, over 400,000 men, when, when fewer than 90,000 were, were projected to come out of Dunkirk, over 400,000 men made it back to England, but without their equipment, without artillery, without tanks, etc. The French were captured whole cloth. The French who evacuated out of Dunkirk, here's a fun fact for you, were then sent back to France. Because the, the Battle of France was not over because the British left. The, the French continued fighting, and the RAF continued f sending fighters across the channel, etc. But French, uh, uh, France surrendered uh, a few weeks later, and England stood alone, period. Their army was still wet from Dunkirk. Uh, they didn't have the tanks, didn't have the artillery. America was resupplying, was, was uh, the arsenal of democracy again, just think of World War I. But we were not in the war. We were neutral because, of course, there was a huge American movement for neutrality because World War I was just 20 years in our past. And there are a lot of Americans have become very cynical about why did we fight in World War I? I mean, we, we lost more men in World War I uh, than uh, we lost in Vietnam. And we lost more men in six months in World War I than we lost in 15 years in Vietnam. So Americans were, were very cynical about World War I. And so the entry into World War II, the thinking was, let the Europeans fight their own stinky wars. F them. And that was the popular, more than 60% of Americans were saying, don't get involved, let this Hitler guy do, do whatever he wants. So, so that's why we're not in it, okay? So that's our American context. Thing two. Did Hitler want to invade Great Britain? Yes, he did. Uh, it was an order. It was the Fuhrerbefehl, I want to say number 16, uh, setting the conditions to invade England. Condition number one was to wipe out the RAF because they had nothing else. The British had nothing else. They were not tanks. They didn't have heavy divisions anymore. They had men, but everything else was left at the beach at Dunkirk. So Hitler understood this, and he said, wipe out the RAF. You wipe out the RAF, and we can parachute our guys in, and then we can float across the channel basically in river barges. It didn't require a huge invasion plan. It were, they were going to treat the English Channel like a river. This is going to be the summer. It'll be calm. And who cares? The RAF is going to be wiped out. And why wouldn't they be wiped out? We have a 6-to-1 advantage in fighters and bombers on them. We are going to shoot them down out of the skies. They can't replace their planes. They can't replace their pilots. We're going to bomb the crap out of their airfields. This should take two, three months tops. That's what Hermann Goering the uh, Reichsmarschall Hermann Goering, the head of the Luftwaffe, told Hitler. He said, give me two or three months. We're going to flatten England, um, and then we can just swim across the channel in sailboats. Not a problem. So, yes, Hitler wanted to invade England. What he wanted, by the way, was for the British to just surrender and to simply say, okay, we got it. Uh, we lose. We stand alone. You've wiped out our army. We still have the Royal Navy. And Hitler had a proposal for them, and it was maintain your overseas empire um, bring the Royal Navy into port, uh, drop anchor, stop aggressive warfare, surrender, and that means completely capitulate. Don't sneak the Royal Navy 
over to America. Don't think you're going to get, get away with that. But we are going to occupy England. But you know what we'll do? We'll do what we're doing with France. We're not going to have German troops from Scotland to Land's End, okay? We're going to have a occupied zone of southern England. We're going to have a German-friendly government. And then you're going to administer the rest of the country, just like the French have. And that, that was Hitler's idea of uh, being a nice guy. But it didn't work. By October of 1940, the Luftwaffe was dragging the tail. They had to admit to Hitler, we have failed to wipe out the RA. We have failed to set your conditions. These guys, we keep shooting them down, but they keep shooting more of us down. We have failed. And in failing, Western civilization was saved. Because had England been overrun, the United States, the American people, do you honestly think we would have been so upset that England was overrun that we would get in a war? It would not have happened. There would have been an exiled British government in D.C. It would have been Churchill or a new prime minister. The Queen would have gone to Ottawa or uh, or Toronto, probably Ottawa. Um, and they would have been possibly organizing a resistance or whatever. But would the United States have been mobilized to go into the war? Without December 7th, we wouldn't have entered World War II. Remember, uh, we declared war on Japan on Monday, December 8th. We never declared war on Hitler. He declared war on us on December 10th, on the Wednesday. So there's really no doubt that if Hitler had overrun England, had occupied England, Western civilization, Western European civilization, and even American civilization eventually would have been threatened. So how is it that these guys, the RAF, were able to actually save Western civilization? Who set them up with the Spitfire, the best fighter in the air, with radar, as we called it, RDF, RDF as they called it, and a, and a way to set up the data so that the British outnumbered could still outfight the Germans and therefore win. Who was the guy who invented this? Who is the one guy that we can place credit for saving Western civilization? I'll tell you about Air Chief Marshal Hugh Dowding when we come back. It is the Dark Secret Place deep dive into the Battle of Britain when we come back. KFI AM640, more stimulating talk. KFI AM 640, more stimulating talk. It is Dark Secret Place doing a deep dive into, you know, Western civilization. Why are we here? Why weren't we wiped out? When uh, Remember when Hitler defeated the RAF and invaded England and World War II was effectively over? And uh, the United States fought a brief war with Japan from about 1943 to uh, about 1945. Uh, and it was fought conventionally. And it was ended uh, conventionally with the really horrific invasion of Japan uh, where we lost several hundred thousand people. Remember that? Well, it never happened because uh, we used an atomic bomb. And it also didn't happen because the Japanese uh, bombing of Pearl Harbor uh, entered us into World War II, in the Pacific at least, and then Hitler did everyone a favor and declared war on us in, on December 10th, 1941. But was the war already won? You could make the argument that a year and a half earlier— when the British won the Battle of Britain, and there was no final battle, they didn't plant a flag anywhere. It's just that one morning, the Luftwaffe stopped coming. And that's when the British knew that they had prevailed in the uh, Battle of Britain. Uh, the iconic movie, Battle of Britain, by the way, it, the special effects uh, don't stand up the, to the test of time. But the cast is incredible. From Laurence Olivier to Michael Caine and, and everybody, it's, it's astounding. These British chaps, why'd they win? Well, the guy that Laurence Olivier plays uh, is a, a, a real chap. 
uh, by the name of Air Chief Marshal Hugh Caswell Tremon here doubting the first Baron doubting GCB, GCVO, CMG. Born in 1882, an artillery officer, fought in World War I, where he went to flight school and was a fighter pilot. Um, and my, my great uncle Brick, in the, uh, who was in the Royal Flying Corps with Doubting, the RFC, and then it changed to the RAF a uh, hundred years ago. Last week, it became the RAF. He knew Doubting. My great uncle knew Lieutenant Colonel Doubting. Um, he was nicknamed Stuffy. Because he was said to be uh, unmovable and not, not innovative uh, and stuffy. Uh, the war ended. He remained in the RAF. His career went here and there. And he wound up in the 30s as the head of fighter command. The British had bomber command because everybody knew in the next war, bombers, which in the early 30s, bombers were faster than fighters. So everybody knew that the next war was going to be fought and won by the bombers. Bombers dropping poison gas. That was actually the conventional thinking. In 1933-34, fighters were sort of an afterthought. Um, and so three things happened in the 30s that allowed the British to win the Battle of Britain. In, in August of 1940, the Luftwaffe sent bombers with fighter escorts from across the channel from France. The fighters only had a few minutes of fighting time over England. That was the one thing that he couldn't affect. That was Germany's fault. But on their way to England, they were picked up on radio direction finder sets that we called radar later on, but at the time it was called RDF. They were picked up on radar. The data, their altitude and their direction was sent to uh, higher headquarters where it was filtered and prioritized. And then it was sent to a command center in London, deep underground, where people moving symbolic planes around on a map, indicating a real-time knowledge of where the Luftwaffe was coming from, sometimes from over the horizon. Something never thought to be possible. All this data coming in, but someone had come up with a system to filter out just the important stuff. And why? Because the RAF wasn't as big as the Luftwaffe. But if they knew where to go and, and what time to get there, they would show up with the best fighter plane on Earth, the Spitfire. The Germans had a great plane, the ME-109, the Messerschmitt ME-109. <clears throat> but it didn't have the fuel to s sit around and protect the bombers. It was a good fighter. In the hands of a good pilot, it was a good fighter. But the British had a plane, the Spitfire, that was as good or better. Even in the hands, in some cases, of rookie pilots, guys with only nine or ten hours on the plane, they could outfly the Germans. One of the reasons they could outfly the Germans was because they knew the Germans were coming. Better than the P-51? No. No. They, even the British admit that. But in the summer of 1940, in the skies over England, the Spitfire in the hands of a good pilot was the best plane in the sky. And in the, in the hands of a, of a fresh pilot, it was still a very lethal plane. But that's the key, was that the pilots had a great advantage that the Germans didn't have. The British knew where they were coming from, what altitude, what direction, etc. And that was a battle-winning combination. So, so who did this? Who set these things up? Well, it was Hugh Dowding, because in the 30s, he was, a, he was the uh, commander of fighter command, and he was not stuffy. For instance, the story of radar, the British discovered, well, I should say this, 1886, Heinrich Hertz, in, uh, in, not, doesn't invent, he discovers radio waves, that, that, that radio emanates in waves. Heinrich Hertz. That's why we have megahertz and kilohertz. So what? January of 1935, 
the British were looking for, I'm not kidding, I'm not making this up, a death ray. They were looking at a way to shoot a ray five miles into the sky that would boil a pilot's blood. Boil his blood at about 105 degrees. They really were. Honestly, were they were they had scientists working on a death ray. And in their research on the death ray, there happened to be a coincidental conversation between one of the scientists and some technicians at the Royal Post. For you see, in Britain, uh, telegrams and radio communication was done by the Royal Post. If you want, there was no Western Union. It was a government entity. You went to a post office to send a telegram. And the technicians were complaining to this scientist from the RAF. Because as it turns out, when you chaps, now that you're making your planes out of metal, remember, World War I, the planes were wooden fuselage with, with uh, fabric covering them. By the early 30s, the British had all-metal biplanes, uh, or mostly metal biplanes, and they had all-metal bombers. And the Royal Post were complaining to this RAF scientist in 1935. They said, when you chaps fly your bombers between our radio towers, you play havoc with our signal. You scatter it all about. We, our radio waves are going from A to B. You fly between A and B. It screws up our telegraph. We can't send the signal because for, for, for those t times that it's it, between the antenna, you screw up the signal. It scatters all over the place. And the RAF scientist said, let's scrap the death ray idea. But you know what? There might be something in what those guys say about what an airplane does to radio waves. Uh, when we come back, the, uh, the background, the, the amazing little details that led to, you know, Western civilization being saved in uh, 1940. Back right after this, it is The Dark Secret Place, uh, doing a dark secret deep dive. KFI M640, more stimulating talk. KFI AM640 more stimulating talk. The British saved Western civilization in the summer of 1940, and I'm telling you how. The uh, I should just point out that the Grenadier Guards had nothing to do with the uh, air battle, <laughs> the Battle of Britain, but they just have the bloody most spiffing march of all time, don't they? So anyway, there they go. Uh, off you go, chaps. That was Trooping the Color 2012 for the Queen. Uh, so uh, where are we? It's, uh, it's uh, five years before the Battle of Britain. And radar is accidentally discovered because RAF scientists, they employed full-time genius, innovative uh, scientists to do uh, stuff and junk. They had accidentally found out from the Royal Post that when the new all-metal bombers were entering RAF service, the Royal Post started getting interference between antennas with their telegraphs. And so the uh, scientists said, well, there might just be something to that. And they went to the RAF and they said, you know what? We're going to stop researching the death ray. That's a dead end. But we think we may have found something that might be kind of useful. We might have a way to shoot radio waves out and have them bounce back and tell us where aircraft are, possibly even their altitude and maybe even their direction of flight. Wouldn't that be astoundingly uh, crucial information to have? And the RAF actually said, and the, and the British, uh, the Ministry of Defense uh, and all that said, huh, what, what, what good is that going to do? Bombers are going to win the next war. Who cares? What, 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 do you, what do you have a good chin wag about? But Hugh Dowding, the, uh, the Air Chief Marshal for Fighter Command, he immediately knew the, the value of that. Why? Because he was on a shoestring budget because 
Fighter Command were the redheaded stepchildren because it was absolutely known by everybody from Berlin to London to Paris that the next war, and there would be a next war, that the next war would be decided in the air by bombers dropping poison gas, full stop, period. And, and when they run out of poison gas, bombs will do, don't you know? And so there was precious little funding for the fighters. Um, and so Doubting realized, wow, if I could have a way to detect incoming enemy aircraft, then uh, we might be able to be there to shoot them down. But then he realized, wait a minute, if I have this network of this radio direction finding, this uh, so-called RDF, if I have it, then what good is it if we're flooded with the data? If uh, too much data comes in, then our pilots are not going to know where to go. I need a system. And so he invented, he didn't have a model to go off of. They had, they're the guys that invented RDF. And they're the guys who identified this problem of information overload. They didn't even have that word for it. And he said, here's what we do. We have um, a lower <clears throat> echelon of radar stations where operators are sitting there with screens and the towers, the whole thing, and they will just give that raw information. I have 30 bombers at 10,000 feet. Direction of travel, uh, two nine or zero. And they send it up to the next level. And that next level is getting 10 different reports. And they're able to collate and realize, well, the, all these radars are seeing this one formation of planes. Okay, that's good. That's a good uh, track. We're going to send that up. And then it's filtered again, and it eventually gets to London. within. And I'm not talking telephone. This didn't take an hour. Th this took seconds in some cases. Um, simply uh, a, 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 a simple transmission about target size, altitude, uh, speed, and direction. And that got, would get up to London, and that data would be updated. And the little model representing uh, the bombers of fighters, it would have on it a marker uh, on, uh, on a pedestal. There's an airplane, and there would be a marker indicating uh, direction of travel, speed, and altitude, and how many in that formation. So the RAF guys there at Fighter Command could look down at this map of southern England, and they could see in near real time the situation, and they could therefore uh, now marshal and direct their planes to go and meet the Hun. But what about the problem that the, uh, the plane that was in the pipeline in the late 30s and entered service was not state-of-the-art? It was a wonderful workhorse of a plane, the Hawker Hurricane, a iconic sound. The Hawker Hurricane was the backbone of the RAF by 1937. But it would, it would not, because by then the Spanish Civil War had come and gone. And the world had seen that the British, fighting on the side of the fascists, on the side of Franco, had outpaced everybody in aviation technology. The ME-109 was the state-of-the-art fighter by 1937-38. And by golly, Charles Lindbergh himself had toured Germany. And he had certified to the American people that they are too far ahead of us uh, those Germans are just too good. We should just not ever fight a war in Europe. Uh, the British saw that as well, and they said, you know what? This Lindbergh chap uh, brings up a good point, and that is we better have a better fighter than the Germans have because what good is it to have radar? What good is it to uh, filter the data correctly if we're just going to send crap heaps up there to get shot down? So Hugh Dowding, on a shoestring budget, fought for a plane. He said that we need a plane to match the Germans because if we don't have a plane to match the Germans, they'll be encouraged to invite to invade us in the next war, and there will be a next war. By 1938, everyone knew there was going to be a next war. 
<clears throat> and Dowding said, we need a plane to match them or else none of my innovations make any difference. And we have that plane. And it's from this small company called Supermarine. And they have been setting world speed records with their float planes. And they have a design of a plane that's radical. The wing is elliptical. It's a bizarre, almost uh, unworldly design. And they call it the Spitfire. And I need that thing or else we're going to lose. And the story of the Spitfire, when we come back. Uh, taking a deep dive in why Western civilization was saved by this handful of people in the summer of 1940 and what it was uh, that, uh, that helped them save it. It is a dark secret place. Brian suits in here until 11 o'clock. KFI M 640. More stimulating talk. KFI M 640. More stimulating talk. It is two. Oh, it's dark secret place. Three hour dark secret place. Uh, starting at 8 p.m. now every Saturday. And when when uh, things merit. Uh, a deep dive, I will do them. And with the uh, the passing of the youngest pilot, uh, squadron leader Jeffrey Wellham, the age of 97, dying on Wednesday, the youngest pilot in the Battle of Britain, I just thought it's a good time to remind everyone how the British saved Western civilization. They saved Western civilization by defeating Hitler or preventing Hitler from invading England, uh, which would have led to a Nazi-dominated uh, Europe, but he couldn't take England. Why couldn't he take England? Because they couldn't defeat the RAF. And why couldn't they defeat the RAF Fighter Command? It was because the commander of Fighter Command, Sir Hugh Dowding, was a genius. So the right man at the right place was there by 1936. Uh, RDF had been invented, radar, as the Americans would call. That's a, the one big technical failure in the movie Battle of Britain, which is a British movie, by the way, is that in the movie they refer to radar as radar. But in May of 1940, in July of 1940, no one called it radar. That's an American acronym. The British called it RDF, Radio Direction Finding. Um, but he green-lighted the money to develop RDF, did Hugh Dowding. Uh, he also was smart enough to figure out that it would lead to information overload. They had to have a way to filter and prioritize the information so that they could theoretically send the best fighter plane in the world to the point of the spear where the most German bombers were or whatever. The best uh, fighter plane in the world was on the drawing board of a company called Supermarine, and it was the Spitfire. And uh, the British, against all odds, because Hugh Dowding uh, went directly to the conservative government, to the Tory government, and he said, listen to this Churchill chap. He's the one guy saying that Herr Hitler is going to be our foe. Uh, the British had a 10-year uh, rule. Every year they had a resolution in Parliament. Are we likely to face a foe in 10 years? And for the first time in 1938, even though they were way late, they finally said, yes, that could happen. So uh, new money opened up, and Fighter Command, though still everybody in the world was convinced that bombers were going to win wars, uh, but Fighter Command got the money to purchase the Spitfire. So now Dowding had the three things that were going to win him the Battle of Britain. He had radar, he had a system of sending that information uh, to where it could do some good, and then when it could do some good and fighters were directed, they were directing the best fighter. Though the main fighter in the Battle of Britain was still the Hawker Hurricane, a very serviceable fighter. Uh, the, the, uh, the narrow margin, as they say, uh, the, the title of a very famous book about the Battle of Britain, uh, was the Spitfires in the hands of good pilots. And then what about the pilots? Because pilots take training. And how do you do this? It takes years of experience. 
The British had multiple feeder routes, including getting enlisted men into cockpits, sergeant pilots. Uh, the British had, uh, but there were, and then there were there were chaps from Oxford who had flying clubs. Don't you know? And they were uh, just gifted, rich gentlemen, uh, and and the whole thing. So the British had a way to replace losses. But as Churchill pointed out in that speech in August of 1940, he understood one of the great advantages the great advantages that the RAF had in the Battle of Britain was they were fighting over England. And so if a man was not killed outright, and there were plenty of men killed outright, but if a man wasn't killed outright, he parachuted onto Britain. And he copped a ride, he hitchhiked, whatever, but there, they uh, fantastically didn't run out of aircraft. Because the chap in charge of uh, the Ministry of uh, Industry was a guy by the name of Lord Beaverbrook, a, a very famous, actually, opposition politician to Churchill. But Churchill knew he was brilliant, and he put Beaverbrook in charge of aircraft production. And the British did not run out of aircraft, which was one of the things that the Germans assumed was going to happen. Uh, the Germans took years to develop pilots. The uh, British also took uh, years and months. They had to speed that up. To get those young guys in the cockpit like our friend Jeffrey Wellam, who died on Wednesday at the age of 18 in May of 1940. Uh, and so th these little decisions made years before the Battle of Britain came to a critical mass in July of 1940. And they provided the, uh, the material for the British to prevail. The Luftwaffe was defeated. Goering had to go to Hitler and say, hey, uh, remember that order about what we had to do to invade England? Thing one, destroy the RAF. We failed. We did not. We, we lost planes. We lost experienced pilots. We can't do it. And so the Germans put off Operation Sea Line, Operation Zeilöwe, and they fortified the Atlantic Wall. And they said, well, we never wanted it anyway. That's part of the reason that, that, rose, that gave rise to the myth that the Germans never really wanted to invade England. They did. It would have been the end of the war in Europe, and it would have been a Nazi-dominated European continent with the United States with no dog in the fight at that point, and a very, very active isolationist streak in the U.S., would we have entered a war to liberate Europe again without a prov provocation from Hitler? Probably not. And so the savior of Western civilization goes down to the RAF in Britain in the summer of 1940, and the leader of Fighter Command, Hugh Dowding, who made these uh, astounding decisions. Uh, and he, this is, this is another punchline while he was commander of fighter command, he had exceeded the retirement age and he had opponents even at the height of the war who didn't even know that he was winning the war for them. Didn't understand what he had done and what he was doing at the time. And he had foes who wanted to fire him in the middle of this. He, uh, uh, was retired about uh, a year later, 1941 after the Battle of Britain uh, was over, and it was understood by some of the visionaries, including Churchill, what an astounding thing that was. Uh, but nevertheless, he, uh, he was retired, was Hugh Dowding. But uh, that's the name of a man. If Martians landed and said, of all the people between 1940 and 2018 who have saved Western civilization, is there one guy who was at a pivotal moment who did it? And I would say probably Hugh Dowding. Um, and after that, I might say, uh, because what he did was on the level in significance in terms of the fulcrum that, that history pivots on. The things that he did were so successful by design that the only thing you can compare it to was the use of the atomic bomb to end World War II without invading Japan. 
because had we not done that, we would be living in a far different world. Uh, it would be a world where we probably would never have forgiven Japan for not surrendering when it was time to surrender. Uh, that is the level of uh, significance of what happened when these young men, like uh, the late George Wellam, who died on Wednesday at the age of 18, getting in the cockpits of Spitfires, turned back the Luftwaffe. And uh, we, uh, we, we owe them the world that we live in today. A uh, few of them knew it at the time. Luckily, Mr. Wellam, uh, he wrote his biography late in life, uh, late in life. Uh, it's called First Light. The, the BBC made a, a documentary out of it uh, and a movie. But uh, the youngest pilot in the Battle of Britain died on Wednesday at the age of 97. Uh, and with him, uh, he, uh, he takes that legacy of uh, the, the few. As Churchill said, never in the history of human conflict uh, was so much owed by so many to so few. And he means the pilots of Fighter Command, of the RAF. Uh, all right, back tomorrow for Super Hyper Local Sunday. There will be a whole lot of stuff because it uh, seems to be shaping up like an eventful L.A. weekend. Um, a book I recommend, by the way, a quick read this summer, if you want to pick up a book called The Summer Bright and Terrible by David Fisher. Winston Churchill, Lord Doubting, Radar, and the Impossible Triumph of the Battle of Britain. A Summer Bright and Terrible. Really, really good book. You can grab it uh, on Amazon. I, I went to... Uh, I went to Iliad, and I got it for like $3.99 here in Burbank. Use bookstore. Great one. Check it out. Support bookstores. Um, all right. Thanks to Hector. Thanks to Michael Chappé. Uh, also, Josh Saylor, uh, our, new, our new board up, and uh, Joey Murata, producer, because now the Dark Secret Place has a producer. Uh, I'll be back tomorrow for Super Hyper Local Sunday. Please enjoy. Drive safely. Everyone, we'll see you back here on KFI AM 640. More stimulating talk.